In today's episode, there are new grave warnings about the climate crisis, why the happiest countries are actually quite sad, and a new fishy alternative to plastic. But first, it was on this day in 1930 that bird's eye frozen food went on sale for the first time. With the help of indigenous Canadians, Clarence Birdseye perfected his technique for freezing fresh fish that would revolutionize the food industry forever. Ongoing and widespread flooding is devastating parts of eastern Australia as the country continues to battle this wave of floods. Climate scientists have warned that the country, among others, is at a precipice. Human-caused climate change is increasing the risk of this kind of event and now a dire warning comes from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They say over 3 billion people, nearly half of the planet's population, are living in harm's way because of global warming. Here's UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres. I've seen many scientific reports in my time, but nothing like this. Today's IPCC report is an atlas of human suffering and a damning indictment of failed climate leadership. With fact upon fact, this report reveals how people on the planet are getting clobbered by climate change. Even if temperature rises are limited to the best-case scenario of 1.5 Celsius, the UN predicts unavoidable and irreversible impacts on humans, animals and the ecosystems we all rely on. And as the flooding and storms that hit the UK and Ireland last month show, this is not a warning limited to faraway places. In this country, we might need better land management, more flood defence or even moving some communities away from the water altogether. Still, the report warns that as climate change drives food and water scarcity, some people and places have already been pushed beyond their ability to to adapt. COP26 President Almak Sharma described this as another stark warning for humanity. And what this report says to us is that the impact on lives, on livelihoods and nature are far, far worse than were originally anticipated. Uh, and not only that, but those who are affected the most disproportionately are those who are most uh, uh, vulnerable. Those vulnerable communities need more help from rich nations everywhere at the same time that global efforts to reduce carbon emissions are stepped up. It's an enormous challenge we must all rise to. This week, a lorry full of satellite internet dishes from Elon Musk's company Starlink arrived in Ukraine. This follows the Deputy Prime Minister's request for Musk's help after Vladimir Putin's unprovoked invasion has left parts of the country without internet. According to Elon Musk, Starlink service is now operational in the country. But before we get ahead of ourselves, what exactly is Starlink and how does it work? We spoke to technology correspondent Will Gaia to understand just that. So this is a new generation uh, satellite internet service. Um, Elon Musk's been working on it with SpaceX for a number of years. And satellite internet until this point has been a bit crap. It's used in areas uh, where you can't get any other kind of signal. But what Elon Musk has decided is... He's putting about 2,000 satellites up into space because space is currently unregulated, so he can throw as many as he wants up there. And they're at a low orbit, so they're about 300 miles. And that means this is going to deliver much faster internet. It's in such an early stage at the moment, though, that um, people are seeing speeds of about 200 um, meg down and about 20 to 50 up, which is pretty good if you haven't got signal from anywhere else. So how will this help Ukraine? 
So the idea is if the, if the internet in Ukraine, the infrastructure gets taken down, or let's say it becomes under the same strict controls as the internet is in Russia, um, people will be able to use, if they've got the equipment, the receivers and the kit, they'll be able to broadcast, um, they'll pick up internet from the sky, um, internet which isn't bound by any state or government's rules or considerations of what the internet should be in terms of censorship. What does this mean for ordinary Ukrainians? Will they be able to access it easily or will they need one of Elon's fancy discs? They're talking about having repeater stations and other sorts of systems built on the ground, which aren't actually available for people who buy uh, this service to to use yet. So I'm not entirely sure how they're going to work. But the idea is they will be able to build a a, a network of connections in the Ukraine and uh, enable people to use the internet when other services get compromised or taken down. And from what I understand so far, the first handful of people who've got access to this are getting pretty good speeds enough to stream live video to do tv broadcasts and those kind of things and share information from areas where where the internet's otherwise been lost getting a satellite service and getting kit into an area like that is no mean feat and um it's going to be interesting to see what happens here because some tech experts are really concerned that um the fact that you have to get up onto roofs to put these uh dishes and stuff and they they can essentially uh, if a plane is flying over it can reflect information back onto the plane people do worry that these could become targets for russian bombers that's the that's the one concern uh, about this technology being rolled out it might be early days yet and despite the track record it looks like elon has already delivered on his promises this time so to come in the smart seven sunday how pressure to be happy could actually be making us sad and a curious case of the uk's bat-eating spider Whether you're scrolling through the gram or flicking through the channels, one thing becomes very clear. Everyone is trying to portray themselves as though they're 100% happy all the time. Our obsession with happiness and positivity is a relatively modern phenomenon. And ironically, it could be the very thing making us unhappy. I'm uh, Egon de Jonkheren. I investigate the impact of societal norms or cultural factors on personal well-being. As part of a study, Aegon and his team wanted to see how the societal pressure to pursue happiness was cultural and varied between countries. Ironically, the team found that the predicted effects of social pressure to be happy was higher in countries that score highly on the World Happiness Index. And what we found was that in countries higher on the World Happiness Index, if you experience a lot of pressure in those countries to be happy, then you report poorer well-being. And this relation was not true in countries that scored lower on the World Happiness Index. If you live in a very happy country, you're surrounded by a lot of happy individuals that seemingly comply to this very stringent uh, emotion norm to be happy all the time. And if you yourself feel that you cannot comply to that prevailing emotion standards to always be happy and not to be negative, then you feel like you are an outsider because everybody else seemingly complies, but you yourself cannot. That social comparison process may actually make it more salient that you yourself uh, are not able to comply to that norm. And that could actually uh, explain why in the end you even feel worse and it has uh, paradoxical uh, negative consequences for your well-being. 
So we have happy countries with unhappy people. Surely that means that we need to approach happiness and positivity in a different way. I think so, yes, because now in modern societies, we have a very one-sided focus on happiness uh, and positive feelings in general. So there's this implicit but also explicit message that we should always try to be happy or pursue happiness. Uh, while negative feelings are often regarded as maladaptive or bad for our mental health, while they clearly also have a valuable, uh, yeah, or there there is value to negative emotions. The, the value of these negative emotions is often not very well communicated in, in modern societies. There could be value in actually trying to embrace positive feelings as well. So we kind of have a, a more balanced um, view of our emotions where we pay attention to both positive and negative. So where do we go from here? How can we strive to lead happy lives without falling into this trap? I would say that we should more focus on uh, yeah, the value of negative emotions, not only for ourselves, but also uh, for others. If we see a, another person uh, displaying negativity, he or she had a, a bad day or something negative happened, then we can yeah, actually, instead of trying to say, uh, cheer up or uh, look at the bright side of things or don't worry, be happy. Instead of having those um, claims about their emotional life, we could also say, yeah, that really sucks for you. Like, um, I, I feel you and, and, and we relate to these negative feelings. That, that would be my, uh, my suggestion there. There's nothing wrong with happiness, of course, because happiness relates to a lot of positive outcomes. Uh, happier people tend to live longer even. Uh, they have more friends. Uh, yeah, uh, the, uh, they tend to earn more and etc. So uh, it, it has a lot of good things associated to it. But um, I think it shouldn't be a goal in itself. Rather, it should be the byproduct of trying to live a meaningful life, doing things that you actually like rather than focusing on this happiness goal uh, per se. If we try to focus on trying to be happy all the time, if we try to focus on that less, then I think in the end it will, uh, it will have better consequences for our well-being. Scientists in Ireland have published the first record of a noble false widow spider feeding on a protected species of bat in the UK. The new study, titled Web Slinger vs Dark Knight, shows that false widow spiders continue to have an impact on native species of bat. It marks the first time any species of false widow spider has ever been recorded preying on mammals. A member of the public uh, actually noticed a bat being entangled in a web uh, in a house in the UK and posted a picture on social media and uh, my postdoc, so John Dunbar, actually contacted that person and tried to know more about the story and what really happened and uh, uh, we actually understood very quickly that this was a first. That's Dr Michael Duggan, he led the research team. What's very interesting here is that the spider actually set its web just below the bat roost. And so young bats that are trying to fly uh, have that possibility to fall on that web. And then the spider, which is actually quite small in size, produce that extremely strong web and manage to hoist so this prey that is several hundred times its own weight and then wrap it in silk so it is 
preserved from any kind of other predators and then bites it, injects it with venom and starts to consume it. Originating from Madeira and the Canary Islands, the Noble Falls Widow has the potential to become one of the world's most invasive species of spider. Those kind of observations are actually essential to our understanding of the Noble Falls Widow, which is an invasive species. We already observed this species of spider feeding on the native and protected uh, viviparous lizard, which is the only species of reptiles we have in Ireland. Now to actually notice that those spiders are capable of feeding on fairly large mammals as well is a very important discovery because it shows once again their disruptive potential in this habitat where they do not belong. Still to come on the Smart 7 Sunday, the future of flying cars is just around the corner and the special link between hearing and memory. Right after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to The Sunday Seven. Follow us for your weekday news espresso, or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. Our hearing is often something we take for granted, whether it's the sound of a loved one's laugh, (laughs) birds chirping, or your favourite song on the radio. It plays a vital role in our lives, not just for listening to music or communicating, but also for our emotional well-being and memory. New research from Specsaver shows just how important sound is for our memory and emotional well-being. It reveals that for 11% of us, sounds trigger happy memories for them every day, with 41% admitting this happiness a couple of times a week. For anyone who has that one tune that takes them back in time, this should be no surprise. Claire Maddox is a qualified neurologic music therapist from the British Association for Music Therapy. And she says the results from this new research is an important part in the work she does. So what they found was that out of all the senses, sound is the one that's most able to trigger happy memories. A third of people said sound can help trigger happy memories and eight in ten reported that music can uplift their mood unexpectedly. And the reason for this really kind of comes down to how our brains perceive music. So how do sounds trigger memories? 
basically, the more you listen to a piece of music, the more your brain remembers the predictability of the music. It remembers, you know, where that beat's going to drop or it remembers where there's sort of changes. And while your brain is essentially taking in this information, it's also noting sort of where am I, what am I doing and what are the emotions that I'm feeling. So this is why when we hear a song on the radio that perhaps we've not heard for a really long time, it can take us back to a key moment in our lives. So maybe a wedding or maybe a phase of our life. And um, actually 70% of people say that their favourite song can take them back to key moments. So there's a very powerful link between music and our brain. So in order to keep on having these positive associations with music, we should probably be protecting our hearing. Soham Sembe is an audiologist and she explains why our hearing health is so important and how you can go about protecting it. Two thirds of people, so about 64% of people said that losing their hearing would impact their mental health. And if we combine that with the relationship between sound and memory and the link between hearing loss and dementia, we need to do everything that we can to protect and preserve our hearing. We can do that through having regular hearing checks, making sure we don't listen to music or the TV too loudly and ensuring we wear hearing protection when we're, be, when we're going to be surrounded by loud noises. If you're listening to music through headphones, having it at a reasonable volume, a lot of smartphones will now tell you what the acceptable volume is when you've got headphones in. Um, if you don't have that facility, then just limiting the amount of time that you have the headphones on or you have the music playing um, and, and just getting your hearing checked on a regular basis. I think sometimes it's just as simple as being able to just check the levels of your hearing maybe on a, um, a two yearly basis. It's like something out of the Jetsons. This Swedish company has built a fully electric flying car that they say anyone can fly. Describing it as a jet ski for the skies, the all-electric personal pleasure craft can have you airborne for up to 20 minutes and is on the market for a mere 80,000 euros. We founded the company in my double garage. That was company founder Peter Turnstrom. And then we decided to, uh, to build a, a, a kind of like a big drone where you can actually sit sit in it and fly instead of just remote controlling it. So that was that was the first idea. And it took us, uh, I think, about uh, six months before we had something that actually could fly. It wasn't very pretty. <laughs> it looked a little bit like a, like a flying ladder with a, with, a, with a sports seat on top. But it did fly, actually. We thought that this was going to be really easy. I mean, Thomas Patton is a, is a brilliant engineer and he... Uh, he has been building drones since the 2008, uh, but it was much more difficult than we thought. We had all kinds of trouble when it comes to matching the correct motor with the correct propeller, propeller size, propeller inclination, the width of the cables. That needed really thick cables for this, and we didn't know that from the beginning. For the Jetson One, we are not aiming to be something that you can use for daily commute in the city or anything like that. The Jetson One is like a jet ski for the skies. It's made to, to so you can have fun. An aircraft of this type, because it doesn't weigh so much, it weighs less than 250 pounds, you don't need a pilot's license to fly it in the United States. But you can't fly it, you can't hop between skyscrapers on Manhattan, so you have to stay out of densely populated areas and also far away from airports.
our mission, long-term goal, is to make big, big, big cities much better places to live in. By 2050, we're going to have 7 billion people on the planet, which is 70% of the people are going to be living in large metropolises. Traffic jams are going to be one of the biggest, biggest challenges. We are removing lots of cars from the streets. The cities are going to be a much greener place. There's lots of, a lot of positive things from, uh, from an environment perspective with the revolution and the advent of the flying car. But it's going to take a little bit of time. <laughs>